Welcome to the Broken to Unbroken podcast with Dr. Nick Askey, where we dive deep into how to eliminate pain and continue to train. guys welcome to episode 17 of the broken to unbroken podcast you're stuck with me in a solo episode and we had two questions from last week i apologize for the delay things have just gotten crazy in the clinic and i was unable to uh get this and give it the attention that it needed so the first question was from logan and it was about what how important is post-workout nutrition and what is happening in the body if you delay the nutrient delivery versus having it right away. Uh, we covered a little bit about post-workout nutrition in our last Q&A podcast, but to go through what is happening in, in the body during exercise. So it all depends on how you go into the workout. So if you're going into the workout in a glycogen depleted state. So let's say glycogen is the storage molecule of sugar in the body stored in two areas. It's stored in the muscle and in the liver. And if you go in in a carb restricted state or a ketogenic state and you already are depleted of muscle glycogen, you're already starting off with less gas in the tank, so to speak, if you are not doing a purely aerobic exercise. So Aerobic, a good guideline is the talk test just to, to dumb it down. I know guys like Cody will, will go to all extremes to say that that's not true across the board, but we'll just for generality purposes, uh, if you can talk or recite the Pledge of Allegiance and not be completely out of breath, in general, that's an aerobic activity and you're going to be burning more proportion of fat and then glucose or carbohydrate. And if you are in an anaerobic state or a sub-anaerobic state to where it's hard to talk when you're exercising, you're out of breath, then you're using primarily carbohydrate. And if you go into that workout uh, with full muscle glycogen, because you've been, been binging on ice cream and chips and and eating carbs and like that episode of the office where he's eating fettuccine Alfredo in the, in the back of the race, uh, in the race heat, like he's carb loading day of morning of, uh, if you go in with full tank, it's going to take you, uh, probably anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half to deplete your muscle glycogen, depending on your muscle mass. And you're going to be able to run on primarily carbohydrate without any added fuel. If you go in and you're like, okay, I only eat 20 grams of carbs a day. They're primarily uh, high fiber, so not a lot of net carbs. You may go in with your glycogen stores not topped off and you're going to switch to a process called gluconeogenesis. You're going to mobilize sugar uh, from protein or muscle tissue. Uh, and, and you're going to make that and you're going to burn that. So, or you're going to have to rely on artificial sources like a, a branch chain amino acid or any of the, the goos or gels or, or any of the things you see in the, the race fueling aisle to give you artificial um, sugar. And this is why people have trouble doing high 
impact stuff and high intensity stuff like CrossFit and jujitsu while they're on a ketogenic diet, because they're not able to burn fat at that high level intensity. It's different with an endurance activity to where you may be mostly aerobic, uh, where you can burn fat. Then if you're fat adapted and you're on a ketogenic diet, uh, you're going to be more effective at burning body fat during those activities to where you can leave the house and go on a hundred mile run and all you need is some salt and some water and you're going to be good. So with a high intensity workout, like a martial art or a CrossFit, and it's a long duration grinder, we're not talking a 10 minute Metcon here. You are going to be in a fairly depleted glycogen state and a fairly low blood glucose state. And what we have to understand is you can fuel your body with fructose, which is a primarily a fruit-derived sugar. That needs to make a pit stop in the liver in order to it to be used for it to be used in your muscle tissue. So it's not going to be automatically absorbed into the muscle tissue. And then you have glucose, which you're going to get more readily from corn derivatives like waxy maize. Uh, sweet potatoes, squash, carrots, like vegetable-based carbohydrates. That's why it was the big thing in CrossFit to carry a bunch of pouches of sweet potato baby food in your gym bags so that you could carb up after a workout because those go and they have less time in the liver that they're needed to be processed so they get absorbed by the muscle tissue more readily. And... Uh, there's a pro there's a product called three carb that's out by the makers of three fuel. I don't know how, um, how much they're marketing it, but I know they put it in the three fuel product. And that is from what I understand, a waxy maze derivative, which is a phenomenal, uh, if you have a tournament or you're doing multiple CrossFit workouts in a competition, uh, I've noticed crazy results from that to where you don't feel like you're on your third workout of the day and you feel like you got gas in the tank because you're just topping off the fuel with that waxy maze supplement. But if you wait to where you are two hours after a workout, we're not talking anaerobic window for protein intake. We're talking, okay, your body's going to sense that you're low on blood sugar, so it's just going to mobilize more glycogen by breaking down muscle tissue and a catabolic function. So you're just going to break down muscle tissue because you weren't refueling your body after that activity. And you're, if you're trying to put on muscle mass, that's going to be a counterproductive activity. So you want to make sure that you're, if your goal is not weight loss, your goal is maintaining muscle mass, maintaining lean muscle mass, and in not losing weight, uh, you're going to want to have a carbohydrate source that's primarily derived from uh, vegetables, not fruit. Uh, because if you eat a banana or you eat an orange or you have something that's more fruit derived, you're basically doing the same thing as having to wait two hours because it does have to stop in the liver first. So I hope that is enough on that question. And second question from Logan was more on exercises to improve box jump height or vertical leap. And I know part of this is not just him doing high box jumps. He's wanting to do some crazy spin kicks. So we need to think of vertical, but also rotational power. So 
you have to be able to generate power through your glutes and your obliques to rotate your body as well as jump. Uh, and there's an exercise that was really heavily used for hurdlers, triple jumpers, high jumpers in Eastern block track. And that was the box squat and box squats also very heavily used at West side barbell. And it is a squat with the barbell lower on the back. Uh, so it's instead of it being right on the upper traps, you create a shelf uh, right there on your scapula. So it's lower on the back and you're going to squat to a box that is just below parallel or at parallel. And this is more of a hybrid between a deadlift and a back squat. So you're going to have more of a vertical shin. So instead of it looking like a front squat to where you need a ton of ankle range of motion, uh, this doesn't require a ton of ankle range of motion. It kind of takes the panic out of hinging back into your hips because you know there's a box back there to sit on but you're also not able to rely on that elastic rebound in the bottom of the squat. And if we take that cheater mechanism away from people, they have to generate power out of a dead stop, which is pretty similar to generating power from jumping dead stop off the ground. So they've found great results with, yeah, that may be a slower twitch exercise, but if you have to go from a dead stop with 300 pounds on your back doing a box squat, you can really generate a ton of torque and it's more of a glute bias because it is a hybrid between a deadlift and a back squat. So that's a great exercise to improve your vertical. Uh, another thing is practice box jumps, but my philosophy on box jumps is they should be done not for high reps, so don't get a 24-inch box and jump on it 50 times because that's not going to make you any better. You should warm up thoroughly and maybe do five reps to where you start at maybe 80% of what you think you're capable of when you're nice and fresh and you're not fatigued and, and you're just feeling good that day, like you have some spring in your step. Start at 85% of what you think you can jump and just do five total reps and work up maybe an inch increments from there and just use those as an explosive power development exercise rather than a repetitive activity that every time you're bounding off the box you have a a minuscule chance but still a chance to rupture your achilles so i don't think that just going at these mediocre easy box jump heights for tons of reps is, is a great safe strategy to go by. And the open in 2012 was perfect representation of that when the software crashed and people were able to do that first open workout with box jumps and double unders and light snatches 17 times before they had to submit their scores. And there were tons of Achilles ruptures. So I'm even if you do have light box, low box jumps in a workout, I do recommend that you step down because unless you're going to the games, it's it's not worth being out a year for a ruptured Achilles. So uh, Adon had a question on disc herniations and the best strategy to manage them, whether it's surgery or stretching. And this is a very complex topic. And what we need to realize is there's been study, there was a 2014 study in Germany that was done and they MRI'd 100 people with zero history of back pain. 
40% of those people had disc-related changes on their MRI, and they had zero history of back pain. So we have to really take it with a grain of salt, because depending on what literature you read, about 60 to 65% of people over 30 years old have some disc-related changes in their lower back on MRI. So we really have to look at it. And I have a lot of experience with ordering MRIs to where I have clinical suspicion that the person is having motor deficits and neurologic problems. So I order an MRI and I know that one disc is the problem and it's on the right, that correct side, it correlates clinically, but they have three other disc herniations that may even be bigger on their report, but they don't matter because they don't correlate with the, the person's clinical findings. There's also some areas in the disc that can create non-radicular symptoms called an an, the annulus of the disc, and those are the cartilage rings. And those can create this really deep, achy kind of block of spasm in the low back. And those are, they're almost unfair because they look like a little white dot on the MRI and they can wreck the toughest person's world because they can generate a lot of pain because the outer part of the disc has a lot of nerve innervation and it can become very hypersensitive and it can really wind you up from a sensitivity standpoint. So you can't go by size of the disc bulge because I've seen some of the biggest disc bulges uh, at levels that didn't matter or in patients that didn't really have symptoms with that correlated with that problem. So you really have to take it with a grain of salt on size of the disc bulge and really go over those findings with your doctor going, okay, does this, is this the right nerve root? Is this the right side? So, because it really can vary where someone has a 13 millimeter disc bulge and they recover, they don't need surgery. And I've sent people with two millimeter disc bulges for surgery because we just couldn't get them, get it calmed down. And so my guidelines with somebody when I'm managing their their disc, and we'll we'll generalize this to low back, but if I'm managing, let's say someone comes in, they're locked up, they they have a hot disc, they're tipped forward, they got constant pain down to their foot, and we'll say the first thing I'm going to check is if they have motor weakness, if they can walk on their heels, if they can walk on their toes, if they can lift their big toe, because that's a big thing that I need to check for prognosis of if we have motor weakness, I'm going to be quicker to pull the trigger on the MRI. If I can't get the symptoms above the knee to where we start squeegeeing the pain back to the source, which is their low back. If I can't get it above the knee in two to three appointments, we start talking MRI, but people are quick to jump the gun on the MRI, but your insurance company knows that the majority of cases with conservative management are going to respond within six weeks. So you have to have progressive neurologic problems, which means you're getting a lot worse in a hurry. You're developing motor weakness. You're losing bowel and bladder function for us to get an MRI approved inside of six weeks. We have oral steroids we need to prescribe you need to be having a lot of insurance companies, you need an x-ray first, even though it's dumb and it doesn't really show much. They're looking for the, the, the bony related problems to where if you have stenosis or by chance you do have some metastatic tumor in, in the low back, which I've never found in nine years. 
uh, they want to rule that out before they pay for a $1,200 MRI. And why, why would they pay for a $1,200 MRI if we're going to have you fixed the majority of the time by the time you even have it done? So if we can get the pain above your knee in a couple of visits, that's a good sign that we're going to be able to, to resolve this conservatively. And if you look at the recurrence rate of disc-related problems in the low back, it's in the neighborhood of 85%. And I tell my patients, I'm like, yeah, that's not great, but 80, those 85% include people that every time their back flares up, they run to their pain management doctor, they get a shot, they get a steroid pack, they just try to medicate their way out of the problem and they didn't do any rehab. They didn't do anything to address the mechanical cause of their problem. They don't know what's causing their problem. They just run for medical maintenance of this. So that really artificially inflates the recurrence rate of these. And I want my patients to be part of the 15% to where they're educated on their problem. They're able to spot many flare ups before they become major problems to where I give everybody a test to where usually the last thing that comes back is morning symptoms. And it's either hard for you to bend to the side, forward or backward in the morning. So every morning, even three months after people are fixed, I tell people, this is your test to where let's say it hurts to bend backwards. And it kind of gives you a pinching feeling in your low back when you bend backwards in the morning, but then it goes away when you're up and moving around. And we've established that this is a disc issue. Every morning when you wake up, you bend backwards. If it doesn't hurt, it feels full and free, you're probably good to go. You can probably be lazy and not do your rehab that day. But if you test it the next day after a bunch of sitting because you were driving for work or what, what have you, and it feels like a one or a two out of 10 tension and you ignore it, and then you wake up the next day and you test it and it's a four out of 10. That tiger is about ready to pounce on you. So you should probably jump on your exercises and bring a four down to a zero and then just keep testing it because that's your forecast of how your day is going to go. Because the vast majority of people, if they aren't doing gymnastics or dance, they aren't bending backwards very much during the day. Other than the, the slight movement from sitting to standing, we don't get a lot of extension. So you need to test those movements. The last things to kind of go away after a flare up, that should be your test daily to figure out if this is creeping back up on you and you're ready for one of those moments to where it doesn't feel bad, but you're sitting, sitting in your closet and you're putting your underwear on one morning and your back goes out. And that's a whole nother episode of naked and afraid that nobody wants to go through. So I've had a couple of those calls to where, all right, I bought a car in Florida and I drove it back and it felt fine. And then the next morning I was putting my pants on and I fell on the ground and I can't get up and we had to call the ambulance. It can happen like that if you don't test it and know your triggers and figure those out. And that's what's good about working with a, a, a good manual therapist, a good chiro, a good physical therapist that is educated on talking you through these things so that they can outline your treatment plan to get you through that episode, but also identify your triggers to where you're not scared to do them, but you're aware of them so that you can really know when to plan ahead. So 
I hope that answers some of your questions because it's hard to just go, okay, you got a three millimeter bulge, you stretch that, or you got an eight millimeter bulge, you go to surgery. It is really a case by case basis. And that, that seems like a political answer, but it's just so individualized with the exam, the imaging findings, the history in, in how those are going to respond to conservative management, who needs an epidural steroid injection, who could benefit from some PRP or some stem cell injections or prolotherapy injections, ozone injections. There's a lot out there that is different from surgery. And there's also a couple different kinds of surgery. Uh, a lumbar fusion is a lot different than a microdiscectomy. Uh, they are night and day different and they have night and day different outcomes. So if you have someone who just nonchalantly recommends a fusion, I would run far, far away and seek a second opinion because the vast majority of, of the data on lumbar fusions, it's really a 50-50 proposition. 50% of people get better and 50% of people either stay the same or get worse. So when you're making that, that high-level decision about your body, I want more than 50-50 unless it's an absolute last resort. The, the, the outcomes on microdiscectomy procedures are, are much better, but they're still not something that you want to treat like a haircut. It's still a spinal surgery. There are still risks involved. And you still want to go to a couple different surgeons. If surgery is in the picture, it's not someone to, to go do the Groupon thing or whoever's closer to you. You want to get two to three really good recommendations from people who are well-connected in the healthcare field and sit down with all three, two, three surgeons and play dumb. Don't go, hey, I saw this person and they said this and this and this. Just go, hey, what do you think? And you don't want to lead them down the same road. You want to kind of have that, that check and balance of, hey, I'm in here and they are assuming they're the first doctor that you saw. And you want, kind of want to check if they give you all three recommendations are the same, that's probably the best thing for you. But if all three are drastically different, then reach out to someone you trust and someone who doesn't have a financial interest in the decision that you make and have them help sort through this for you. Uh, so I hope that helps answer the question and I hope you guys enjoyed this solo podcast. And if this generates more questions, feel free to, to comment on the Facebook uh, feed, uh, send me a private message, send me a DM at kickaski on Instagram. I'm always looking for more more Q&A material because these episodes are pretty easy for me to just off the cuff chat and record them and get them out to you guys so that we get you more content. The ones that require setting up meetings with very busy guests with very packed schedules and pre-sending out questions, they do take a little bit more time. They are a lot more interesting, I understand, but this helps me just kind of shotgun content out to you guys so that you can get your questions answered. So thanks again for listening. Episode 17. If you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes, that helps us uh, get exposure to more people, get content out to more people. So please do leave us a review. And if you do like it, share the podcast, share the link. 
and it's much appreciated. Thank you.